0: What a joy it is to be with you here this morning. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Allen, for the invitation to preach. Uh, Later today, over lunch, I will be speaking on the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, We're going to be thinking about the amazing work that God did uh, throughout his ministry. You know, thousands converted under his preaching, hundreds of pastors raised up, charitable institutions that were founded, churches that were planted, missionaries that were sent out. And yet, as wonderful as those stories are, now that sure seemed like a long time ago. Here we are in this post-COVID world, and we're facing all kinds of unique challenges, aren't we? A culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, uh, increasing confusion about sexuality and marriage, economic recession, wars and rumors of wars, And in the church, so many today seem to be moving away from biblical convictions. You know, as thankful as we are for Spurgeon, uh, we know that we can't live off of the events of the past. Every generation needs a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. So what would it take for us to see a revival, a a surprising work of God in our generation? You know, of course, church growth gurus have offered all kinds of answers to that question. Uh, Dynamic youth groups, right? Children's ministry programming, robust adult ministries and engagement. You know, most often their answers focus on the lead pastor, right? If only the pastor was more dynamic. If only he preached shorter sermons. If only he preached longer sermons. If only he followed these leadership principles, Friends, I wonder what you think would take for us to see a revival today. You know, what I want to impress upon us this morning is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Which means, on, on the one hand, that revival is a lot simpler than we thought. And, on the other hand, it means that revival is a lot more impossible than we thought And to help us to be convinced of that, I want us to look at 1 Samuel, chapters 13 and 14. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. 1 Samuel, chapter 13. You know, here the Israelites are going to find themselves stuck in a hopeless situation. And yet it's in this situation that we're going to see how God saves and revives his people. And that's basically my outline. Point number one, our dire condition And point number two, God's sovereign salvation. So first, our dire condition. Look at 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. I'll pause there. You know, Saul has been chosen king here in Israel, the first king in the nation's history. First Samuel 13 opens with Saul assembling an army of 3,000 men. And Saul must now deal with the Philistine threat to the west. Jonathan is Saul's son. He is a commander of Saul's army. And we see in verse 3 that Jonathan strikes the first blow. And this prompts Saul then to now call all of Israel together for war. But the Philistines respond. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. All right, so now this is open war between Israel and the Philistines. And we see here, clearly, the Philistines have uh, the numerical advantage, uh, and they also have the technological superiority. Uh, In other words, Israel is in trouble. And in in verses 17 to 18, we see that the Philistines are not marching out in open war against Israel. Rather, they're setting up their forces in garrisons at Michmash. And from there, they're sending out raiders to the north and south and east to raid the Israelite villages and farms, to cut off Saul's supplies, and to discourage the Israelites. You know, basically, this is a war of attrition. The Philistines are going to grind down Israel until Saul has no choice but to surrender. Uh, look, Look down at verse 19 of chapter 13. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. Look at verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. I mean, talk about a desperate situation, right? How do you fight without any weapons? How do you defend yourself? Look back at chapter 13, verse 6. Look look how Israel then responds. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Well, Saul has rallied the people to him, but they are terrified. They don't have any weapons. They are vastly outnumbered. And so the, the vast majority of them just flee. They, they hide in caves and holes like rats. In, in verse 7, some Israelites leave the promised land. They, they cross the Jordan River. As far as they're concerned, the Philistines can have the land. Right? Well, we'll see later that there were even some Israelites that had joined the Philistines. And the people that did come to Saul were trembling. Uh, things are not looking good for Israel. Now, back in chapter 7, God had defeated the Philistines under Samuel the prophet. And now Samuel has commanded Saul not to do anything until he comes, until Samuel comes and offers a sacrifice. God would authorize a war through his prophet, Samuel. But look at verse 8. See what happens there. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. You know, have you ever heard of the term the tyranny of the urgent? Right, that, that, that's what Saul is feeling at this point. Samuel is delayed, the forces with him are scattering, the Philistines are assembling. Saul just feels like, I can't wait any longer. i got to do something. I need to authorize this war against the Philistines. I need to show the people that we have God's favor behind us. And so Saul takes charge. He, he refuses to wait for Samuel. He offers the sacrifice himself. And as God would have it, just as he's wrapping up, Samuel comes. And in verses 11 to 12, rather than confessing his wrong, Saul blames everybody else. Uh, he, he sounds like Adam in Genesis 3 really. Uh, He he blames Samuel for being late. He blames the Philistines. He blames the people. I mean, this is the kind of king that Saul is. He he will do whatever it takes, even it goes against God, in order to win. As dire as Israel's situation is, he will not turn to God. No, he will take matters into his own hands. And what will God do with such a king? Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Well, as much as Saul is trying to secure his own kingdom, he is rejected by God. His kingdom will not endure. And so the chapter ends with an unfaithful king, a depleted army, an unbeatable enemy, and the people scattered, trembling, and hiding. This is the desperate condition of Israel. You know, friends, I wonder, have you ever been brought to a place where you felt utterly helpless? Feeling where you felt desperate? right? And I wonder, perhaps many, some of you, maybe some of you are feeling that way this morning, right? You're encountering health issues that doctors just don't seem to be able to treat, that that sin and temptation that you find yourself struggling with and and giving into time and time again. Or, Or maybe graduation is approaching, and you have no idea what's next. Maybe you're dealing with heartaches and Problems with loved ones who have rejected the gospel again and again. You know, whether or not you've ever felt utterly helpless, the truth is, at the end of the day, we are all utterly dependent on God for everything, right? All that we have comes from him. None of us made ourselves. None of us sustain ourselves. At any second, all that we have can be taken away And we fool ourselves if we think that we exist by the sheer power of our own will. As creatures living in a fallen world, every blessing we enjoy is a gift from God. And anything that God takes away belongs to Him. So if God ever brings you to a situation where you finally feel helpless, you finally feel dependent on Him, know that He is finally opening your eyes to your true condition any sense of self-sufficiency that we have is an illusion. If Israel thought she could live in the promised land because of her own military might or diplomacy, she was wrong. And if we think we can flourish in this world apart from God, we also would be wrong. And yet so often when we face these kinds of situations, we are like Saul, right? We take matters into our own hands We think that our prosperity and our security comes from ourselves. When trouble comes, we compromise God's commands. Like Israel, we hide or we flee or we defect. We stop giving to the church. We hoard our possessions. We stop sharing the gospel in fear of rejection. We think living in sin is normal and reasonable. And yet it's in those moments that God graciously brings along a Samuel through his word to confront us, to reveal to us a God bigger than our problems, bigger than our meager solutions. Friends, as those who so often think that we can take matters into our own hands, thank God if he ever brings you to a point of helplessness. Because that feeling of helplessness is more in line with your true condition than any feeling of self-sufficiency that you have. Lean into that helplessness, confess your need of God, and from that position, cry out to God. You know, what you need more than anything else in that moment is a view of God that is bigger than the troubles that you face. And if you feel like you don't have anything to feel helpless about, I would just say get to know other people in your church, in your classes. Uh, Past their surface appearances, right? Because I assure you, there are plenty of people all around you who are walking through some really horrible things. And if the Lord has blessed you with emotional peace and strength, he intends for you to use that to help those who are weak, right? Together, we learn the gift of depending on God. Well, thinking more broadly... Is there anything about the state of the church today that ought to make us feel helpless? You know, ironically, I think so many of the problems of the church today come from our refusal to feel helpless. Uh, We look at our post-Christian culture that hates Christianity, that hates God, and we think, hey, if we can just get them into our doors if we can just figure out the right technique to unlock their hearts, if we can just follow the right healthy church strategy and do exactly what Spurgeon did, then our church will grow and be successful, right? If we can just adapt the church and adapt the gospel to make it all winsome and attractive for, for, for the world, then we'll reach the lost. And like Saul, as everything has fallen apart around us, we think, hey, we've got this, right? We can handle this. And we rush ahead, of what God has commanded. And slowly and surely, we we begin to compromise the church, compromise our witness, compromise our message, and we leave God behind. You know, when we do that, we act as our own saviors, and we miss out on the far better salvation that God has in store for us. You know, friends, if, if we've got our theology right, if we truly believe in total depravity, then we, of all people, should feel our desperate dependence upon God when it comes to the ministry of the church. Well, I think our refusal to acknowledge our desperate condition is part of our desperate condition. And yet, praise God, our salvation never came from ourselves. No, it comes from God. So point number two, God's sovereign salvation. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. You know, here Saul is with his depleted forces of 600 men. You know, it's interesting. Saul here brings along in verse 3 a hija as a replacement for Samuel. You know, again, what a picture of Saul's pragmatism. You know, Samuel has left, but rather than repenting, Saul just finds a replacement. And it's so interesting how the narrator goes out of his way to connect Ahijah to Ichabod. The glory has departed without glory, right? Well, well Saul is sitting around. Jonathan is tired of waiting. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, The Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Man, Jonathan has got to be one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I mean, here is a true kingly character. Uh, Here's one who had a simple and unshakable trust in God. Now, he refers to the Philistines as the uncircumcised. Jonathan understood who Israel was, right? They were God's covenant people. They had received the sign of circumcision, the sign that they belonged to God. And notice here that Jonathan doesn't presume on God's help, right? Verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us. You know, in other words, God doesn't have to do anything for Israel, They certainly don't deserve it. And yet clearly Jonathan has not lost hope. Despite how dire their situation was, Jonathan knows that God can do anything. For nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few, Jonathan says. It actually makes no difference how dire the situation is. Nothing can hinder God's saving power. Well, Jonathan and his armor bearer go over, Jonathan, in effect, prays for a sign. And the test is, if they say, come up to us, this is a sign that God is calling them to be aggressive, to charge into battle. And that's exactly what happens. The Philistines call Jonathan over. Jonathan goes, and God does the rest. <laughs> Jonathan strikes down 20 in a short space, and then God brings about a panic among the rest of the Philistines. This earthquake comes, a sign of God's judgment upon the Philistines. Well, when we turn to the rest of the chapter, we see in verses 16 and 20 that Saul sees what's going on. He asks Ahijah now to authorize the war. And even before Ahijah's finished, he releases his soldiers to join in the battle. Apparently, Saul did not want to miss a chance to get some credit for this victory. But here's my favorite part. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time... And who had gone up with them into the camp. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. In other words, this is a revival of the people of God. This is not merely about Jonathan's courage. No, this is about all of Israel including those who had defected, including those who were hiding in caves and holes, all of Israel coming out and joining in the fight. In other words, God is saving Israel, not only from the Philistines, but also from their own fearful, defecting hearts. And so we have this conclusion in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Friends, I love the contrast between chapters 13 and 14, right? Israel, in her most dire situation, I mean, next to their slavery in Egypt, I can't think of a worse situation. And yet, even so, God is not hindered one bit by many or by few. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, even as we must come to see that we are utterly helpless and that our condition is desperate, at the same time, we must be those who believe that God is not one bit hindered by our condition, but he is able to save. Whatever we lack, God can provide. God's salvation always comes unilaterally, powerfully, because of his sovereign grace alone. And we should not be surprised by this, because this is exactly God how God has saved sinners like us in the gospel right? Uh, At one point, we were dead in our sins. We were headed for wrath. And yet God in his mercy sent his son, his faithful son, Jesus Christ, into this world, not just to give us a helping hand, not just to sort of encourage us and help us along. No, Jesus came to save. He fulfilled all the obedience that we lack. He bore all the judgment that we deserve. And on the third day, he rose in victory. Over all of our sin and death. Friends, how does God's salvation come to us sinners today? Not by what we bring to the table. No, we, we are not Jonathan in this story. No, we are those trembling, weaponless Israelites. We are hiding in tombs in the ground. But just as God saved his people here, so Jesus stepped out in boldness and accomplished all that we ever need to be reconciled to God forever. No, this is always how God saves his people, unilaterally, effectively, decisively. And all of this points to the sovereign, powerful salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I don't want to assume that everyone here is a Christian. If you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, I'm here to tell you that your situation is desperate. It is far worse than you ever imagined. You are dead in your sins. You are headed for wrath. You cannot save yourself. And yet, if you know that you are a sinner, then know that there is a God who sent his son to save even you. And he will do so if you repent of your sins and trust in him. Now, for my brothers and sisters here, as those who have been saved by Christ, we've been given a mission. We're to take the gospel to the nations. And yet this task seems daunting, doesn't it? You know, I think this is where Jonathan can be such an encouraging picture to us for how God can use our very ordinary obedience. You know, Jonathan's faith, I think, here is remarkable. And yet, really, Jonathan is not doing anything really that unusual for a soldier like him. He doesn't presume on God's grace. He doesn't go out in the battlefield calling down an earthquake, you know, using some like spells and magic. No, he's a good soldier. He's he's willing to show himself rather than hide. He's willing to, to do something. And yet, even there, rather than forcing the action, he waits for God to show him what to do. You know, I think in, Jonathan, we see a great picture of God's call for us amid our desperate conditions to simply persevere in faith, right? You know, it all looks hopeless. Yes, we don't have many weapons. Yes, people hate the gospel, but we persevere. We keep showing up to the fight. We keep praying. We keep giving. We keep looking for opportunities. We go to the mission field. We go to the church, we keep proclaiming the gospel, and we keep praying some more. You know, Jonathan didn't go up there with this thought, ooh, if I just do things this way and say things in this particular manner and pursue this kind of strategy, then there will be an earthquake and God will do this amazing miracle. No, no. Jonathan just said, hey, let's go over and let's see what happens, right? Uh, It may be that the Lord will work for us. You know, I think there's a wonderful balance there in in humility and hope in Jonathan. You know, that's what faith in God looks like. Our hope is in him, and the visible evidence of that faith, then, is our willingness to persevere, to just continue showing up and doing the right thing. And every time we show up, we believe that God can take our small efforts and do something spectacular. So what would it look like for you to show up like a Jonathan? You know, for some of you, that may mean that you join a local church, right? You actually go public with your faith and and identify yourself with a body of gospel-preaching Christians. You know, for others of you, it means that you begin giving sacrificially and financially to the work of the church. For others of you, it may mean doing something more difficult, like teaching a Sunday school class or initiating a Bible study with a non-Christian friend. Uh, Maybe preaching down at the City Union Mission here in town. or or working with a refugee family here in Kansas City. You know, if you're a pastor, it certainly means giving yourself to preaching excellent Christ-exalting sermons week after week, Even if you can't see the fruit of it right away. Whatever it looks like, it means never underestimating what God can do with your small efforts. As Jonathan says, it just may be that the Lord will work through us and for us. And what a wonderful thing it is when God does that. Because, you know, what what I love about this passage is that victory is not just the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines, it is also the mobilizing of Israel, right? Those who were previously cowering and hiding are now emboldened to join in the fight, to join in the work of God. Friends, how wonderful would it be if God... Were to use our small obediences to spark something larger, right? to spark a larger movement within our churches and beyond. You know we've seen God do this work throughout church history. Uh, this is what we call revival. You know, as Jonathan Edwards calls it, revival is a surprising work of God a particular season in the church where God awakens his people to the gospel and brings about remarkable fruitfulness in their obedience and service, leading to the growth and strengthening of the church. People normally think of revivals, they associate revivals with unbelievers getting saved, and that certainly does happen as a result. But revivals are primarily about sleepy Christians being awakened by the Holy Spirit, to the glory and the majesty of Christ. And it's in these seasons of awakening, of revival throughout church history, that we have seen the church strengthened. And that we have seen the gospel spread in evangelism and missions and church planting. And what's so interesting is that throughout church history, God uses the unlikeliest of figures to do that who are willing to step out in obedience. I mean, I think of the early church. I think of Stephen and James and Polycarp and Perpetua and so many faithful brothers and sisters who testified to the gospel with their blood. And yet in that, God used that to establish the church, establish the work of the gospel in that Roman Empire and beyond. I think of that late medieval church steeped in corruption and false teaching. And then along comes this fearful, guilt-laden monk who discovers justification by faith alone and takes a stand for the gospel in his day? I think of colonial America during a time when religion was in decline, where nominalism reigned, and then God brings along this socially awkward, brainy, monotone preacher called Jonathan Edwards and this cross eyed, fiery preacher called Whitfield, and through them brings about this awakening, right? Establishing a gospel, vibrant, gospel centered, christianity throughout the colonies i think of spurgeon the country boy showing up in london during a time of darwin and theological liberalism and yet turning the city upside down with his preaching being used by god not only to save but mobilize thousands of christians for missions and for church planting i think of the church in china in our day after all the western missionaries were kicked out in the 50s and yet three days three decades later missionaries going back, finding out that the underground church not only survived, but multiplied so that now there are millions of Christians in China. Friends, during so many times when the church seemed most dead and struggling, that's when God has worked his powerful hand through the bold witness of the unlikeliest of servants. So I wonder if you're discouraged by the state of the church today? You know, are you discouraged by the reports of scandal and abuse in the church? Are you discouraged by how those stories are being paraded before the world to our shame? Are you discouraged by the constant fighting and disunity? What about the state of your own local church? Are you discouraged by the lack of certain ministries? Are you discouraged by your leaders are you discouraged by how few people are being converted? You know, we're always thankful for transfer growth. But don't you want to see people from the community, people coming out of non-Christian backgrounds, professing faith in Christ, being radically converted, right, being baptized? Don't you long to see our children radically converted and devoting themselves to Christ? And even more than all these things, are you discouraged by the state of your own heart? By your own spiritual dullness? By how easily you give in to sin? By how dry and lifeless God's word can seem to you? By how ritualistic your worship can seem Sunday after Sunday? You know, friends, there's only one answer to all these things. It is for God to revive his people. It is for God to supernaturally awaken us to the truths and glories of the gospel. And regardless of what we think about the broader church, our prayer for revival has to begin with every single one of us personally, individually, first of all. You know, what difference would it make in your life if God were to intervene like this and to awaken you to who he is and to turn you into a Jonathan, to lead others out of their tombs and holes into the fight? You know, every generation desperately needs the revival of our hearts, the revival of our churches, and only God can bring it. So what should we do? What is there for us to do? We must pray. We must pray. We must pray. You know, alongside the preaching of the gospel, the most important work that we do is we pray. And we're not just praying for the lost, we are, but we're praying for ourselves. We're praying that God would revive us and our churches. We're praying that God would revive our pastors. We don't need new pastors. We need awakened pastors who can bring God's word to us with hearts on fire for him. You know, friends, if God were to bring about this kind of work here in Kansas City, what wonderful things could he do? Wouldn't it be just like God to do an amazing work beginning here in this small school here in the middle of the Midwest? You know, I've lived on the East Coast, I've lived on the West Coast. You know what they call this region? They call us the flyover states, right? There's nothing to see here. You just fly over these areas to the other parts of the world. That's apparently that's all we're good for. And yet, what God, what could God do through students? through pastors, through churches from the Midwest to promote health, to promote vibrancy and missions throughout the SBC, throughout the world. Nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. So brothers and sisters, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray that the Spirit would work powerfully by His Word, that revival would begin here even with you, and that it would spread throughout your church, and beyond. You know, especially make it a point to attend your regular church prayer meetings. If your church has regular congregational church prayer meetings, show up to those and pray with a sense of desperation. If your church doesn't have a regular congregational prayer meeting, then gently and graciously go to your pastor and say, hey, what do you think? Should we start meeting together for prayer? Uh, I assure you, you know, your pastor's preaching may be good, but it's not that good, right? He needs the prayers of his people behind him. And when you come to pray, come with the realization that this isn't just any regular old prayer meeting. No, this is at the heart of what we do as Christians. We come together to pray because we believe that we are not sufficient for this work. God alone can save. God alone can revive. We come with urgency, with desperation, And we ask, knowing that God hears our prayers. Spurgeon says this, The prayer meeting is not a farce. It is no waste of time. It is no mere pious amusement. Some in these times think so, but such shall be lightly esteemed. Surely they know not the omnipotence that lies in the pleas of God's people. The Lord has taken the keys of his royal treasury and put them into the hand of faith. He has taken his sword from the scabbard and given it into the hand of the man mighty in prayer. He seems at times to have placed his sovereign scepter in the hand of prayer. Well, 200 years later, we do not have a Spurgeon in our midst, but God does not need a Spurgeon. God is not limited by much or by few. No, he has us to work with. And so we continue to pray. We continue to be faithful. We continue showing up, putting ourselves out there. And we have the confident joy of watching God work in small and wonderful ways. And if he wills, even in surprising ways. May it be so for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now confessing that too often our hearts are are marked by self-sufficiency, by a lack of awareness of our need of you. Uh, Lord, so often we go about our days thinking, oh, we got this. God, forgive us. Uh, Our view of you is too small. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Oh, Lord, that you would intervene by your Spirit. Lord, that you would awaken us to who you are and to your power and the power of the gospel for salvation unto all who believe. Oh, Lord, make us faithful. Lord, out of that confidence that we would show up in our churches, that we show up in our communities, that we would boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that if you would be so kind, Lord, that you would work powerfully through us in our churches, among the lost, even in the nations. Oh God, we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.